That song is a really great prayer before we open the scripture together. Um, we're listening to your word. It's a song that's going to appear here eh, maybe once a month or so. So uh, feel free in subsequent repetitions to sing, sing along and make it your prayer. Um, God's word is going to come to us from Mark chapter 10 today. And uh, we are in the midst of the last month and a half of uh, walking through the mission and the vision that uh, God has shared with our church, with our community, and with some of the core values that exist, have existed for decades and decades around here that reflect some of the values in God's heart. So if you are a guest or visitor today, you're kind of stepping in a little bit of a uh, family conversation here. However, today's word is about serving in the world as Jesus. So I'm hoping this is a good word, um, whether you're here for the first time or been here for the last 50 years. Okay? All right. Um, Today's message is not primarily one that is targeting your brain or your intellect. It is targeting more your affections and feelings and emotions, quite frankly. So before we open the scripture together, I'm going to tell you a story about puppies. Because what gets feelings going like puppies? Are there cat haters here or what? Or cat lovers here or what? Come on, love your puppies. Okay, here's how the story goes. An Iowa farmer had some puppies he needed to sell. So he fashioned a wooden sign advertising these four pups, and he set about nailing it to one of his uh, fence posts at the edge of his yard. As he was driving this last nail into the fence post, he felt a little tug on the back of his overalls, and he looked down into the eyes of a little boy. Hey, mister, the boy said, I want to buy one of your puppies. Well, the farmer said as he rubbed some sweat off the back of his neck, these puppies come from some fine parents and they cost a little bit of money. The boy dropped his head for a minute and then he reached deep into his pockets and pulled out everything he had, a single and a fistful of change, and he held it up in front of this farmer. Is that enough, mister? And the farmer, with a little bit of a soft heart, said, Well, sure, it's enough to take a look. And then he whistled for his dogs. I whistle very poorly. Anybody with a loud whistle? Come on, give me more than that. All right, thank you. I think a musician would be able to whistle, but it's a lifetime failure. All right. Out from the doghouse in response to the farmer's whistle bounded the mother husky, these are huskies, and four of the cutest little husky pups you've ever seen, these little balls of fur, and the little boy pushed his face up to the fence, hardly believing how wonderful these puppies were, his eyes dancing with delight. And then this little boy noticed one more thing stirring at the edge of the doghouse and slowly Another little ball of fur appeared in the background. This one was a little bit smaller. It slid down the ramp and then struggled to try to keep up with the others and then gave up and just lay down in the grass. I want that one, mister, the kid said, pointing to the runt of the litter. The farmer knelt down beside the boy and said this, son, that is not the puppy you want. He will never be able to run and play with you like the rest of these dogs will. And with that, the little boy stepped back from the fence, reached down, pulled up the leg of his jeans, 
and revealed a whole series of scars and a brace and a special shoe. And looking back up at the farmer, he said, You see, sir, I don't run so well myself, and this dog is going to need someone who understands. Thank you for that. that was a, that's even better than an amen right there. Now, the meaning of this story and the reason that I tell it, the meaning of this story is one that Jesus, again and again, tried to impress upon his disciples, that it's better to be last than first, that it's better to give than to receive that it's better to serve than to be served. But it can be so difficult for those disciples 2,000 years ago. It can be so difficult for disciples, that's us, even today, to understand this message, that it's more blessed to serve than to be served, to be last than be first. So the invitation is to open your ears and hear this word from Jesus, and feel this word from Jesus. Here's what the gospel says. Mark chapter 10, 35 to 45. Then two of Jesus' disciples, James and John by name, the sons of old Zebedee, they came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now that's quite a statement. Children, I would encourage you someday after school to come home and quote the Bible and say, Mom, today I want you to do for me whatever I will ask of you. How would that go? It wouldn't have gone well for me, I know that much. So this is an amazingly self-interested uh, question that these two disciples put in front of their master, Jesus. Almost treating Jesus like a genie in the bottle, right? Whatever we ask... That's what you're going to do for us, right? They were fishermen by trade, but these guys are fishermen who miss the boat quite frequently. Jesus responds, What do you want me to do for you? He asked. And they replied, Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. Now, remarkably, Jesus doesn't discipline them, cajole them, correct them. He works with their question. In fact, he uh, pushes them a level deeper into themselves. So he hears this very self-interested question, do for us whatever we say. And Jesus says, what is it you want me to do for you? Now, remarkably, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus asks this question, what do you want me to do for you? Not just once, twice in two different situations. It's as if it's an open invitation from the Bible for any disciple uh, to maybe put themselves in the shoes of one of these characters and answer the question. So I know we're sitting here in church and it's Sunday morning when we're all very holy, but if Jesus Christ came to you on Wednesday night at 10.20 p.m. and said, what do you want me to do for you? What kind of answer would you give him at that point? You know, these disciples give, it's going to be apparent, a very self-interested, corporate ladder-climbing, aspirational, give-me-more-of-the-good-life kind of answer. And truth be told, 
probably most Wednesday nights, if Jesus came to me in the flesh and asked me that question, I would give that kind of answer. Hmm. Jesus is driving them to reflect more on what they're truly asking about. Have you heard this word introspection? It means to look within and think about what you're really feeling or thinking or doing. Be self-reflective. So when the disciples come to him, they ask from a very surface level, we just want some better stuff. We just want a better life. And Jesus is saying, what do you really want? He is encouraging them to go a level deeper with the introspection. They're not ready for it yet, right? They are imagining a day when Jesus, I mean, this is the days of emperors and kings and Roman governors, they are imagining a day when Jesus is the man, okay? When Jesus is in charge. And in the old days, if an emperor sat on a throne, he literally had someone on his right, his right-hand man, and someone on his left, and they were the two most important officials in the government. And James and John foresee the day when there is a Jesus administration, okay? And they are saying... Here's what we want. When you're the boss, one of us on the right, one of us on the left. If you've read the entire book of Mark up until this point, it's chapter 10. I highly recommend it. It's a pretty brief read. Scenes like this have come up any number of times already. The disciples are just not getting it and not getting it. Now, if this were a comic strip, if this were a graphic novel, at this point, Jesus would have a big bubble above his head and the word in that bubble would be... <sighs> but that isn't what Jesus says. Here's what he says. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Oh, yes, we can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, In fact, you will drink the cup I drink, and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. See, Jesus leads them to an even deeper introspection, you want power? What do you really want? You still want power? Do you want to follow me so much that you will drink my cup down to the bottom? I imagine as Jesus says this, there is maybe a little quiver in his voice. There is maybe a flash of moisture over the surface of his eyes because though his disciples are still skimming on the surface of the heart level, Jesus is foreseeing the day when he gives up everything, and he is even foreseeing decades into the future when the majority of his disciples will give up their very lifeblood and life breath in order to claim allegiance with their master. They don't know what they're saying yet. But Jesus is talking about drinking a cup. He's talking about being baptized with his baptism, which is a drowning. Now, it wasn't just James and John, right? There were 12 disciples. How do you think these guys felt about this little conversation? When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with these two yahoos, James and John. 
So Jesus called them all together and said this, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Yes, Jesus, we know that this is the way the world works, right? You have people in power, and they exercise authority over those that they have responsibility for. The disciples know about this. They know about the Roman emperor. They know about Quirinius, the governor of Syria. And we know about this too, right? We have presidents, we have mayors, we have governors. Has anyone noticed we're in the midst of an election cycle in the United States of America yet? You tuned into this? Any debates, any Benghazi hearings? There's part of us in this whole political process and in our kind of viewing and being entertained by political figures, there's something within our hearts that is very much like James and John. I'm suspicious with myself that my own political curiosity is at least partially motivated by my own pining or desiring the kind of you know, clout or muscle or prestige or authority that our political figures have in their lives. In fact, with round-the-clock coverage these days, I'm suspicious that part of our consumption of politics in a year like this is like eating a really addictive snack food. Because the next best thing to being powerful ourselves is to kind of thrill at the antics, the words, the deeds of those who really do have their hands on the levers of power in the world. Jesus is offering up a contrast here. One way to wield power is to lord it over people. I'm in charge. You can parent this way too, by the way. It's not a great way. Lord it over people who are smaller and weaker than you. And Jesus is contrasting with another way, which is to drink a cup together. Lord it over, everybody? Or follow me and be baptized and drink a cup together? We're in this all together, is what Jesus is hinting at. I'm your rabbi, of course. I'm leading you. Am I going to lord it over you? And then here's how Jesus puts it with the exclamation point at the end. The way it is in the world, not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. You hear that word? Slave of all, if you want to be first. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now this, friends, if I can label it this way, this is just crazy talk. Right? Think if a government or a corporation or even a Christian college organized itself along these principles. It's hard to admit. This, this is so countercultural. Let us read these words all together just so they sink in a little bit. Please join me. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I noticed something in living with this story over the last few weeks that I have never noticed before. And it, is, it has to do with this introspection word, okay? So the disciples start on this surface level. We just want what we want. Jesus questions them to grow deeper. What do you really want? They give an answer, and Jesus asks them to go deeper. Really, you want to follow me all the way to the dregs of my cup and my baptism? And then he takes them deeper. Here is what it really means. You're going to give up everything. But in this final step, Jesus doesn't just call them deeper within. It's not about getting to know yourself better. It's not about gazing at your navel. It's about getting outside of yourself and reaching out. That is what following Jesus is all about. If I may use this word on you, introspection, deeper introspection, deeper introspection, outrospection. A working definition of this word is as follows. To get to know yourself better and what you are put in the world for, not through looking in, but through giving yourself away and in relationship to other people. I think this is the model that Jesus is recommending in this story. Look in, look deeper, look deeper, and then surrender and live outside and give yourself away, serve, rather than be served. Now, this is a hard word for me. Like, I'm a pastor, right? And we pastors, we love being alone. We love reading, studying, writing. I really would be happy as a clam living like a 100% introspective life. And yet, Jesus is saying, if you really want to follow me, like, introspection will only get you so far. If you want to grow close to the heart of God, being quiet and becoming self-aware will only get you so far. You need to take this quantum leap into using your gifts and your self-knowledge and your passions and your desire to follow me out into the world. And that's actually where you're really going to get to know me and really going to get to know yourself. It's a challenging word. Can you feel this? I think all of us on some level are tempted like, hey, I'll do a little bit, I'll help out a little bit, but you know, like mostly, it's our stuff, our life. Now the main ingredient in outrospection, it's never gonna happen unless you have a powerful experience of empathy for another person or for some part of the world. Now, empathy is literally to feel what another person does. Now, if someone has lost a loved one, we feel sympathy. That's like we feel sad for them that they lost their loved one. We grieve with them. But empathy is to literally feel the loss of someone you love or to experience a very personalized feeling of loss along with almost as if you're in the shoes of this other person. This is the only way outrospection happens. This is why I told the story I told at the beginning of the sermon, because this little boy exhibited a beautiful example of knowing how that little puppy felt. Now, happily, I think there remains from the original goodness that God gave the human race some beautiful vestiges of empathy within all of us. 
Here's an example. If you see someone with a large spider crawling up their arm, what do you feel on your arm? You feel creepy, right? Unless you like spiders, in which case, you're creepy. <laughs> right? There, there are certain physical signs that we immediately identify with the other person because we know the feeling. Right? Empathy is, is that, but not just on a physical level, on a life level. If you have a room full of babies in a hospital and they're all sleeping happily and one baby starts... Within two minutes, the whole room full of babies will be doing what? Crying in chorus. Right? There's these beautiful vestiges of empathy still within us that we can experience what others experience. And this, the art of empathy, the art of imagining what someone else is going through and then interacting and communicating them based on that shared experience, that is what Jesus is after in his disciples. That is how God wants us to love each other. That is why God reveals himself as a father who loses his only begotten beloved son in his work so we can identify with the heart of God and be grateful. Now, there are some huge challenges to empathy, even though beautiful vestiges still exist. One is that we're horribly selfish people, <laughs> right? This is partly why we come to church on Sunday morning and hang out with other folks who have spiritual lives to encourage us in becoming more empathetic people. Last week, Rev pulled out a phone, right? Here's a phone again. Last week, it was for a really positive reason, because if you use this tool, this technological tool properly, it can really help you connect with God through his word on a daily basis. It could be a great tool for that. It can be also, this little device, a marvelous tool for rottenness and selfishness. Now, sociologists have been conducting an empathy and compassion survey for the last 30 years on Americans. Okay? How empathetic are we? Today, oh, this is brutal. Today, the average college student is 40% less empathetic and compassionate than a college student 20 years ago. Some of you are like, what? My kids are way nicer than I was when I was in college. That may be true, but as a cohort, and the reason, the main reason, is they have been conditioned by a lifetime of technology that offers them an individualistic portal of their own life. Have you ever been having a conversation with someone, just the two of you, you're having a great conversation, and they think, oh, I need to Google this. And they, right? I've never done this. Right? They go in their phone, and it's almost like they dive into a magic portal, and maybe 40% of them stays with you. Uh-huh, yep, yeah, right, uh-huh. But something has just happened. They, have, they are engaging with this digital world, and right, this is part of my life. This is how I experience the, the World Wide Web. Right? Having that experience over and over and over again, and my kids are young enough that this has been their whole life. Being conditioned to have your own private portal into your own private world, unfortunately, seems to make us less empathetic and compassionate. And this is not going to change, right? I'm not even recommending or suggesting that this changes. This is just a tool, but we need to find a way to use it as Christians that makes us more empathetic Jesus followers rather than more 
selfish. Now, happily, if you take a young person and take their device away for five days, their empathy scores, more than 50% come back after five short days. How's that? There's a lot of kids that are like, no way, that's not true. It's true. <laughs> Lest I be accusing the young people, there's another recent survey of families with young children, toddler age, at fast food restaurants in Boston. Parents are so involved in their devices that the sociologists were trying to measure what percentage of children at some point during a half-hour fast food meal got frustrated to the point with their parents of lack of engagement, communication, and interaction that they ended up acting out on their parents to get their attention. Anybody hazard to guess what percentage of parents aggravated their toddlers with their devices in fast food restaurants in Boston? 80%? 90%! This is not good news for children. <laughs> this is not good news for grown-ups. This is not good news uh, for, for anybody. Once again, this is a tool, neither right or wrong. But what God is calling us to with all of our lives, with our iPads, with our phones, is to love other people and experience what they're experiencing. If this helps you do that at any given moment, use it for all it's worth. If this is distracting you from loving the people that you are with, then maybe put it away for a little bit. This is not Pastor Greg trying to make up a new moral code. This is me trying to help you feel what Jesus was trying to get his disciples to feel, that it is more blessed to serve than to be served. Now God has given this church a vision to draw people to get to know Jesus, to help all of us become more like Jesus, and to serve as Jesus. Now here's the beautiful thing about serving. Serving, if we do live empathetically and give ourselves away, it is the single most attractive thing for folks who do not yet know God or participate in the life of the church. Seeing other Christians serving and doing compassionate and kind and generous things, that in 2015 is better than having a great two-minute talk about how salvation works. Nothing wrong with a two-minute talk about how salvation works, and everybody needs that at some point. The most attractive thing in our culture for non-believers is seeing us act as generous and kind people. Yes, amen. Here's the other beautiful thing about service. If you've been in church for more than just a few years, it's true of many folks in the room today, giving yourself away and serving in some capacity is the second most catalytic thing you can do to increase your own spiritual growth, your health and happiness in the presence of God and your health and happiness with other Christians. Number one thing you can do for your spiritual growth, Rev talked about last week, hear the voice of God in Scripture. That, bar none, is the best thing anyone can do for their spiritual life. Spend time with God in the Scriptures. 
But in the word, Jesus says, I didn't come here to be served. I came here to serve. And lo and behold, the second most significant thing we can do to grow as Christians, and do you want to grow as a believer? Anybody? All right, otherwise, why did you come here this morning? (laughs) Oh, I heard a pastor say, church is the lamest habit in the world. Like, if you're just here as a habit, like, you could be doing so many more awesome things. You could be, like, on a boat, or you could be having a great... Like, church is a lame habit if you're not really passionate about your spiritual growth. And if you are, time in the Word and finding the right way to serve are the greatest two things that you can do. And it's what the heart of God would have you do. This word from Jesus compels us to lift up our heads out of our own little reality, out of our own little lives, and to see God, to see Christ in in a new way, to empathetically see each other and experience what each other experience. To feel the heart of God, to feel the hearts of one another. And then, as we heard in baptism, with that experience, just to be his children. Just to be his children. Today wasn't about, to give you, wasn't about giving you a laundry list of more things to do. It wasn't even to tell you, you need to be more kind, you need to be more generous, you need to be more loving. The whole point today was to invite you to be God's person, open and ready and willing to serve in the place that God has already put you, in your job, in your house, with your people. Amen. Pray with me. Lord God, like the disciples uh, 2,000 years ago, We keep slipping back into our selfish way of thinking and doing things. Forgive us and have mercy, and thank you, thank you that you do. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will remind us of these words of Jesus, that it is better to serve than be served. God, please open our eyes moment by moment in this very week, in our houses, on our jobs, in our leisure activities, open us to the little ways in which we can be your hands and feet and then give us the courage to say yes, to say yes within 10 seconds so that we'll do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, now is our opportunity to respond. God is so generous with us. One of the things we do in worship every week is um, make our offerings and tithes to the ministry that God does through this church. Um, So I invite you to be generous because God is so generous. And uh, invite the deacons forward as this offering is being taken.